Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interviewer for this episode is Lou Delbello. Lou is a senior science journalist specialized in climate change, environmental issues and international relations. She has more than 7 years experience as a reporter, editor and producer and has worked in a broad range of roles from managing a newsroom to investigating the environmental and social impacts of big coal mines from the ground. She has lived in Italy, the UK, Kenya and is now based in India where she works as special projects editor for the Third Pole in New Delhi. Her interests include environmental issues such as pollution and contamination, climate finance and diplomacy, international trade and conservation. Lou also writes a weekly newsletter called Lights On in which she tracks the climate energy and business debate in South Asia. Our guest today is an expert on global security challenges, water sharing issues, environment, conflict and peace and democratic development issues. He is a professor of peace and conflict research UNESCO Chair of International Water Cooperation and the Director of Research School of International Water Cooperation at Uppsala University in Sweden. He received his PhD from the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi in India in 1991 and since then he has been teaching at Uppsala University. Some of his publications are The Environmental Trap 1996, International Freshwater Resources, Conflict or Cooperation 1997, Managing Water Conflict, Asia, Africa and the Middle East 2004. Transboundary Water Management and the Climate Change Debate 2015 Emerging Security Threats in the Middle East The Impact of Climate Change and Globalization 2016 I'm excited to welcome our guest Professor Ashok Swain Welcome to the show Ashok and Lou Thank you Shahzad and it's great to be here Ashok welcome to the show and thank you for contributing to the podcast Thank you Shahzad thank you Lou it is my pleasure to be here and speaking to you Lou Great. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. So I would like to just jump in right away. And this is going to be the big question right at the beginning. So as an expert in environment, security and peace, you have a unique perspective into how changes in the, the global environment might have an impact on human society. So the million dollar question is, is climate change really a threat to global peace? climate change has a possibility to impact or is actually impacting the global society in many ways this is creating a number of uncertainties challenges in the availability of resources it is creating resource scarcity in certain areas or resource excessiveness in certain other areas it has led to number of natural disasters in many cases projections are there it shows that the world and the global society going to be seriously affected by the climate change and that climate change to connecting to security of course security in a larger context it has been affected particularly the human security context climate change has number of ways is adversely affecting the existing human security conditions in different parts of the world whether it will lead to the violence 
and conflict between the countries. I'm not going to rule that out. Of course, there are possibilities that the world can witness that kind of security threats. Of course, it is also at present being taken seriously by the military establishment or the hard security establishment because their peace operations or their war trainings are seriously being affected by climate change. But saying that, I think Climate change has also given the possibility for the people to cooperate, the countries to cooperate, the societies to cooperate, and to bring certain kind of commonality that because our survival is in danger, the countries and people need to cooperate. And that we are seeing several agreements being signed, particularly the Paris Agreement. Of course, it has issues. Of course, we are not very happy with everything, whatever the Paris Agreement has brought in, but at least 190 plus countries agreeing to, you know, cut down their emissions to really come together to address the climate change. We are also seeing various agreements signed on the deforestation issues, on the transboundary river water management, and also the global compact on migration. So I think these are the things which we need to see that are certain kind of positive and cooperative effort have come up. But of course, the climate change has brought certain serious security situations to be taken look at very seriously. Yes, um, and it sounds like, you know, this big picture is very varied and complex. So the problem is very complex. And I just wanted to dig a bit deeper into the details of these complexities. For example, we sometimes forget that our society are very interconnected. And if a part of the infrastructure goes down, then the rest might follow. I'm thinking, for example, about the connection between energy and water. Let's imagine, for example, the water needs in terms of powering hydropower plants or in any other energy system, there's always some water involved. So what happens in that case when climate change shows one of these elements of kilter? What happens to the stability of a society? Water and energy, as you said, is very closely connected. If you look at the specifically at hydropower, hydropower has been a major source of energy from time immemorial in different ways, but it has been for the last century. Building big dams were getting into scrutiny of some sort for some period of time because of its adverse environmental impact the large population displacement, and also uh, there are other kinds of challenges which comes with because we didn't take that much of an environmental or social impact into account while building these big dams. But now with the climate change, when there is a larger focus or the larger pressure on the developing countries and the, or in many countries that to move from the fossil fuel-led power plants to the renewable resources. So there are a number of countries which stopped thinking of building big dams. They have started building big dams, like China. In some cases, also India is trying to do that. So these countries, they had built a lot of huge dams. But some of the dams which are really become technically problematic because of the possibility of a serious impact of environmental problems. But now, because of the shift has been taking place again, building these kind of big dams. And I think we need to realize that somehow the dam is a double-edged sword. It is a good source of energy. There are a number of positive impacts can be brought from the tap. But whether is this the only way to do it? 
So people, those who have been affected in many countries, large number of peoples, their interests have been sacrificed in the name of so-called national interest, and they need to be taken into account. So I think this is something which we need to realize uh, that climate change has brought back the emphasis again on big hydropower dams. Uh, because the countries are being forced to move from the, or being, you know, asked to move from the fossil fuel-based energy production. But we need to, again, bring back these discussions that how we should do it, again, sustainably and environmentally, which is also not affecting people and the local environment. Then many countries, many companies bought huge areas in Africa, in parts of Asia, these are called the land grabbing, but it's actually water grabbing as well, because you don't really buy the lands in the middle of the desert. You are only the countries who are buying the land when there are water available, because they can really create various kinds of green productions or the all sorts of things which they can really make the so-called green oil out of it. I think this is where we need to really be very careful when dealing with this water energy debate. Also need to look at it, how the climate change has really put too much of pressure on the existing water availability and the existing water availability in a more sustainable way because we are being forced to take certain actions which are not really good neither for the water or for the energy productions we are engaged in. Speaking about water and energy connection, another example that I can think of, I think I'm sure that many of our listeners will have heard of, is the recent uprising of the farmers in India. So part of the stresses that made their life so much more difficult is the fact that the land that they used to cultivate is running out of water. And the fact that it's running out of water is also due to the fact that they're using a lot of energy, uh, free energy, to drive this water from the ground. So there is always an element of policy, of energy use and water use and shortage. Do you have an opinion on how this problem has been unfolding in India? And do you have an idea of how eventually it might be resolved if we address this issue? Very interesting question, but it's a much broader question to look at it, because if you look at the water issue in Punjab, it's a groundwater problem, which I will come back to. But I think it's also there is a the Indus River system, the sharing of the Indus River system to support this massive agricultural expansion in Indian side as well as Pakistan side has been a major area of dispute between India and Pakistan. It's also the water which has been given from the Indus River to the Indian side from the three eastern flowing river of the Indus system that has also created major dispute between Punjab, the Indian state of Punjab and Haryana and sometimes Delhi as well. So I think that those are the surface water problem. But of course, we need to realize that when India was going through serious food crisis, particularly when U.S. stopped uh, giving the PL480 program the grain production, so India went very strongly into this green revolution. And Punjab has been the epicenter of India's green revolution massive amount of the focus of agricultural investment took place in Punjab. And Punjab has been the breadbasket of India. But it is also brought out a number of environmental issues in Punjab itself. Wherever the water logging took place, there has been salination, salinity increase took place. The land got degraded quite badly. Pollution became much more agricultural production was massive. But at the same time, it environmentally, socially, it made a big toll on the region. 
Then climate change has also made it much worse. The reason is because there is a fluctuation or a variation at the time of the rainfall, how much rainfall comes to where. There are also increasing extreme weather events, also increasing temperature and the groundwater depletion. These are all added much more to the farmer's cost rather than what they were able to produce or what had been produced from the land. And I think that has led to disenchantment particularly among the farmers for many, many years now. And if you see that Punjab, there is a large migration of Punjabi farmers have taken place to Canada or Australia, whereas there is a large migration from other states of India, particularly from Bihar, which is taking place to Punjab to take care of this agricultural land. So it's creating an environmental, migrational, populational, and the social issue in Punjab. And I think it was a tinderbox, which has become much more problematic with the climate change related uncertainties. And what we're seeing, the anger of farming community against the farming law is a much longer process. And as I can see, the climate change has a contributing factor to it. So one thing that to me stood out, one lesson that stood out from the farmers' protest is that climate change, as you mentioned, is not the threat in itself, but it can act as a threat multiplier so it exacerbates whatever issues are already there, like being policy or overuse of resources or anything else. Can you give me an idea of what might happen in practice when you have these drastic environmental changes adding to existing tensions? One thing that you mentioned was migration, for example, which we will come back later. But uh, do you have any other example? You see, the climate change, uh, this discussion, we go back to the same discussions we are engaged in the late 80s, early 90s on environmental scarcity leading to conflict. This has been quite talked about how when the resource scarcity takes place, whether the people and groups of the countries will take up arms and fight. But it doesn't always take place. In some places, people have fight. Some places, people don't. Some places really go into a confronting behavior. Some places don't. To give you an example, when the Syrian violence was at its height in Syria, there is a number of research work came out that because of the climate change, because of recurring droughts, this conflict taking place in Syria. At the same time, you can ask, the same drought had also taken place in Jordan. Why we didn't see that kind of similar conflict picking up in Jordan? And I think there we need to take into account, of course, the environmental or the climate change related stress what kind of institutions they do have, what kind of politics they do play, what kind of societies they do have. So if your politics is bad or political leadership is bad, if societal institutions and the governmental institutions are not strong enough to address these issues, and then you have certain kind of social division exist already in the society, then you are likely to to experience much more conflictual behavior than the country which have a politically smart or institutional-wise strong and have a better societal response. So I think this is where we need to realize that the climate change and climate change-related challenges will have different impacts on the different countries, different societies. And that's unless we try to see that and 
put a blanket saying that, look, whether it will lead to war or whether it will lead to conflict. So that is not the right thing to do. So yes, it will somehow add number of security challenges, but how the state and societies are capable of addressing that will really determine whether the climate change will lead to real violence or not. I also wanted to look at situations that might be a bit more nuanced and can take place everywhere in the world. What about slow onset disasters, such as, for example, coastal erosion, that affects basically all countries that have coasts in the world? And I can think, for example, the US have this problem, it's growing, India has this problem, it's growing. Uh, so what do you think are the tensions at play there? And what do you think might happen in this case, beyond the fact that people will have to Yes, I think you are absolutely right, because in climate change related challenges, we always try to put more or the media immediately focuses on the fast onset events, particularly natural disasters, those kind of issues. But it's also the way it comes to our attention. It also disappears once the basic things comes back to some kind of normalcy. But this slow onset of climate change challenge, particularly, it also includes the sea level rise or the desertification of the land or the coastal Those are the things which will be coming slowly, coming long term, and it's very difficult to get it back in a short period of time. I think it needs very coordinated, long term effort how to address this issue, because it will not get the similar type of attention neither by the government or by the international organizations or the international institutions or even the media. So I think somehow we need to look at it that though it is extremely important, it affects all sorts of countries, but because it has become a gradual process, we do not give the same attention to it than which we should do. So in this context, I think it is important for the kind of sensible leadership sensible society to really invest in the long term. This debate of investing in the long term in this kind of impact factors, particularly when in a country and in this democratic setup, when the governments have to change in every four to five years, they need to show that what they have really achieved, putting emphasis or employing resources which will have a possible benefit impacts in the much longer period than the election cycle period. This really creates challenge for the democracies as well. So I think it's very important that the government should be responsible and people need to be informed that they have to make this kind of sacrifice of some sort or to be responsible of some sort that to invest in these kind of research, which will be short term, but very long standing. And the results or its policy impact will not be very much what you can really politically claim about. So I think it all comes down to how we are educating ourselves, how we are building our institutions. They are becoming not only smart now, but also future smart. I just wanted to go back to the migration issue that we mentioned during our conversation. Scientists now believe that in the coming years, uh, we will see more and more migration due to climate change-related events, be it droughts or extreme events or depletion of resources. And this will inevitably have a, you know, a conflict dimension as many people move. So how do you think this will pan out in practice, but also diplomatically. Uh, Will this lead to a new type of diplomacy? Climate-related migration has been 
a major factor of getting the attention of the particularly people in Europe and the United States, because they are fearing that the countries will be flooded with the climate migrants. There are a number of myths with it. Let me go one by one, if possible. I started looking at environmental migration in the early 90s in Bangladesh, where not many people were at that time looking at it. So I have spent in the interior part of Bangladesh for months and months together for three years. That time, we were not talking about climate change that much, but the environmental impacts, the lack of water, the salinity, the deforestations, the lack of fisheries and all these things, how that has really resulted in people moving from their place of survival to other places in the country and also outside the country. So this is what, again, have come back. When you see this migration, environmental-related migration, or at least my experience that time of looking at it, it's very different. There are a certain number type of people, those who could really get used to or accustomed to the new challenges. They can really stay on with this new way of living, survival rather, but others will migrate. But the, their decision to migrate to where, it also varies what kind of people they are, what kind of economic and educational background they have, particularly in Bangladesh also, what kind of, what type of ethnic and religious background you do have. It's extremely complicated factor when a person decides to move in any case, and particularly when a person will decide to move, being forced by environmental climate factors. Saying that, as you know that there have been a number of speculations number of studies which have been come out recently showing that this number of people migrating by 2050, it starts from 1 billion to people like 30 million. Because I was doing a study for the UN DESA in 2019, particularly about this environmental migration issues, we realized that there is at least on average 250 million people will possibly move by 2050 if we take an average of whatever the predictions have been. 250 million migrants, because that's the total number of international migrants exist now. So you imagine if we take that kind of average figure, it will double the number of migrants we have. So if we do have such a problem of all sorts of ways of politicization, populism, and all these things coming up, if that number becomes double, we forget about our refugees, we forget about the economic migrants, because only environmental migrants or the climate migrants will double the number than what it is. It really makes people worry. So this is some things which we need to realize. But I think it all depends whether all these people will end up in other countries, particularly in distant areas like in Europe or in North America. Because as we have seen, most of the migrants are one out of seven migrants usually go into the region rather than leaving the region. So this is one thing which we need to remain aware of when we are making this kind of in media or in research claiming of the people with large climate migration will take place, we need to really make it very clear that why we are saying so and what are the possibilities of not happening in that way. Yes, the international community is not prepared at all how to deal with the climate migration. One of the response has been, particularly most of these economic migrant receiving countries in Europe and North America, rather strengthening their, their border, rather than looking at the, how to really address the problem where the people are supposed to migrate rather than closing down their own border. So that's one thing. And I think that, as you know, the refugee law, international refugee law, doesn't accept the climate refugees as the refugees. 
There was a case by a man from Kiribati who asked for the asylum in New Zealand because he said that his houses have been taken by the rising sea. New Zealand Supreme Court, which came out with the judgment, I think in 2015, uh, which accepted his argument that he has been displaced from his home because of the climate change, but he couldn't be given asylum because as for the refugee law, this person must be feeling persecuted at home, but it is not. He can go back to the Kiribati. So I think these are the things which we need to really bring it, and I think uh, UNHCR and others are asking for it, that we need to relook at the international refugee law, how to include the climate-related displaced people into this context. So I think we need to take proactive steps to possibly work towards that the people will not be forced to migrate where there are climate change-related challenges are coming up, particularly looking at this, as you mentioned before, where there is this slow onset is taking place. People migrating because of the natural disasters probably difficult to predict, but we know that where the sea level rise is taking place, where the sea infusion is taking place, where the salinity is increasing, where the long-term drought is taking place, we must plan to see the international community need to put you know, some kind of preemptive effort of trying to help people where they are supposed to find a different or find an alternate way of living style. At the same time, we need to particularly, instead of closing down our border or making it a securitized, we need to relook at our existing law and the norms of how to accept people, those who have been displaced or forced to be leaving their homeland because of the climate change. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like this conversation is taking place and becoming more and more important. At a time where, uh, particularly some of the biggest economies, I'm thinking of the US, but also India and the UK and others, are really battling with a surge in nationalism, which isolates them from the international community and could have an impact also on the migration and refugee conversations. So how do you think broadly this problem affects climate change response globally? I didn't address in the previous questions. The migration might take place, but not all the migration going to lead to conflict. As I was mentioning previously, that while I was looking at the displacement from Bangladesh and some migration taking place to India in the 90s, the conflicts were taking place mostly when the Muslims were migrating to India. But in the Hindu, when they were migrating, it was not taking place. And we need to realize what is the reason. So it's only if the climate migrants will come, if they look like us, if their culture is like us, their religion is like us, they belong to the same ethnic background, probably there will be a certain kind of better treatment to them than the, those who are, we can easily, or the politicians can easily paint them as the others. So I think this is where the things have become quite problematic in general in the migration issue, as well as this climate-related or the environment-related migration issue. Look at the case of Germany. In Germany, 1960s and 70s, it accepted almost a million or 700 to 800,000 young male Turkish workers. That time, nobody talked about that these workers will really be a threat to German's culture, German civilization, German society. But now, a million of Syrians are considered as a threat to the German when German has become much bigger because that time it was West Germany was taking almost a million single male from Turkey. So I think it's a somehow how the politics is playing how the people are being projected. It has, of course, brought the populists into forefront in many of the countries. 
you mentioned the United States. United States is a country of migrants. If the United States can really look the migrants the way the previous administration tried to project, then any country can. India and China, those countries are two large countries. But if you look at taking the migration, taking refugees, they are nowhere in the picture. India is having problem if you know also keeping 30 to 40,000, uh, official 20,000 Rohingya Muslims. So I think what has happened that in Europe, the similar case is coming. As I was giving you an example in Germany, you see in certain extent in a country where I live in Sweden, I have been living here 30 years. I had never thought that this country will be getting this kind of ultra far right support or certain support base in this country. So I think it has spread to all parts of the world. Even in South Africa, you see a number of conflicts emerging, particularly against the migrants. Again, they are all Africans, but still there's a lot of riot taking place in the South African urban areas against the people coming from the Zimbabwe, Nigeria, you name it. So I think it's a somehow our politicians, our politics have able to divide the people because creating this kind of insecure created on two fronts. One, as I said, that it's a threat to our culture, threat to our identity, threat to ourselves, threat to our nation. The other one is which are smarter enough, they're saying they are taking up resources, our social security, taking up our medical facilities, taking up our school. So they are making the state weak for us to take care of when we need the state's help. So I think it's a two ways. Uh, one is the cultural side, not nationalism, and other is a very practical thing that our schools, our medical systems, our roads, our, all these things being affected because of the migrants. When you come to think of it, you don't really feel good about how the societies are moving, how the populists are increasing everywhere, how the nationalists are really threatening all the countries. And it is also affecting the democracy. You see the democracy with its human rights. For the last 15 years, the real democracies are declining. It's also real full-time autocracies are declining. We are seeing this kind of populist, semi-democratic regimes. They are able to come to power and creating a definition of we and they, creating a discourse that this is we and the others are they. At the same time, we also need to be hopeful to see that there are countries where the politics plays a big part of it. Who is the leader? That makes a big difference. Even a democratic change in the leadership can really bring a big change in the social behavior because we as a society also look at the leaders and how the political system, what is being really encouraged, what is not being encouraged. What was happening in the United States from 2017 to 2020, that four years, has come down. Of course, there you will see certain kind of attack taking place on the Asian American community. The reactions have been also very swift. We see how the Canada has really taken a strong stance in the migration issue and trying to keep certain kind of image. So I think change of leadership can make a big difference. And we see that what is happening in parts of Europe and now recently has happened in the United States. So we should not be really lose our hope because politics is the key here. So if democratic country can manage to change the political leadership, bring a sensible political leader who is beyond this kind of petty mindset, so-called ethnic nationalism mindset, more believe in multilateralism, more in globalism, then we will be able to get out of this. The progression of climate change and new threats brought by climate change might act as a wake-up call for politics as well. Like you mentioned, for example, the US, and that got me thinking, 
the new president Joe Biden really run on a green platform and is now instilling climate change response in much of his big plans. Do you think that could be a wake-up call for other nations too? I think climate change can make trends in uh, very difficult places. Biden has come with a slogan saying that he wants to be a climate president. The first thing he signed got the United States back to the Paris Agreement. But to be a climate president, he needs to cooperate with China. China understands very well it's a future aim of being the next super kid in the global power table. Because if the world will not be there, where the power will be? So China understands it. China understands the real threat of the climate change. And Biden wants to be a climate president. So this can bring really the two so-called leaders of the two different blocks together to fight it. And they are certain ways, like there was recently in the UN Security Council, the discussion about the climate and security. You could see the language of China was much more towards the United States than Russia and India's language were. So I think it's a very different way things you can see that what kind of cooperation and non-cooperation can come in because of the climate change. I was actually replying to an environmental journalist in the U.S. about this uh, John Kerry's visit to India and Bangladesh and the UAE and how that has become politicized rather than putting focus on climate change. How you define why Pakistan is not in that list or Nepal is not there? Because there is no logic. You can really say why UAE, India and Bangladesh have been selected for the John Kerry's visit. I think there is a big role US and China have to play if they really want the global cooperation to emerge positively towards addressing the climate change issue. The others, those who are really, you know, Russia, India, or some others, those who have a little bit of different views, they will fall in line. But I think it's extremely important the US and China needs to work together. This provides them the possibility to work together. Uh, there are certain attempts of working that way. But I think there has been a number of other issues which also needs to be taken into account. Because if you really want to look at the climate change, how much you can really compromise on the issue of democracy. So I think Biden administration has to take a call on that. And whether it wants to be a climate president or a democracy president, we have to see how that comes up in the near future. But I think it needs to relook its policy to some extent and try to focus on doing something really together with China to cooperate on how to make climate change related policies globally much more effectively. Hmm. So in the complexity, there's almost a silver lining to look forward to it. Okay, so that's all for today. Thank you so much, Professor Swain, for talking to us today. It's my pleasure talking to you as well. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Ashok Swain, and our interviewer, Lou Dilbello, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.